And how do you do, ladies and gentlemen? We welcome you on this beautiful evening to the service here in the Meyer Music Bowl in Melbourne, Australia. What a wonderful sight from here. The bowl, as far as you can see, is filled to capacity. We've already had a wonderful portion of our service this evening. And now we're glad that you've joined us. Perhaps you'd like to call a friend right now and say, be sure to tune in. The Melbourne Crusade with Billy Graham, George Beverly Shea, Ted Smith at the piano, and the Melbourne Crusade Choir is on television. I hope you will. And right now, to begin our program, we're going to ask the choir to sing for you one of the beloved hymns here in Melbourne, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. And they're using the Welsh tune that we came to know and love in England several years ago called Blindwer. We trust it's a real blessing to you. Thanks for tuning our way. Stay tuned. And we trust that our service this evening will be a very real blessing to each one. Actually, our meetings this week were supposed to have continued in the stadium and the annex. But we found out early in the crusade last week that the crowds just could not be accommodated. And so, by special arrangement, we've been able to come to the Meyer Music Bowl all this week. 
We hope if you're watching here locally for our telecast this evening is being seen as well all over the state of Victoria here in Australia. You'll plan to be with us here at the Music Bowl tomorrow night. Every night this week we will be here and we'll be looking forward to seeing you as often as you can come. From time to time we are having very special guests come our way and stop over here in Melbourne. Visitors from the United States, and today we welcome two very distinguished visitors, very dear members of the team, Mr. and Mrs. George Ivey from Charlotte, North Carolina. In a moment, I'm going to have them stand. In fact, right now, I believe it'd be well, and let's give them a real welcome to the city of Melbourne. Would you stand, Mr. and Mrs. Ivey? I wanted to tell you before I had them stand that Mr. Ivey was the chairman of our last crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina. And what a wonderful time it was of real blessing in Mr. Graham's hometown. And we're honored tonight to have you folks with us on your journey on around the other way. And may the Lord bless you in your stay in Melbourne. We have another gentleman we want you to meet too, the Reverend Dr. A. H. Wood. Dr. Wood is the President General of the Methodist Church of all Australasia. One of the thrilling things about this crusade has been that the entire church groups, the various denominations, have been with us from the very start. And it's a real privilege to present to our audience, not only here in Melbourne and the state of Victoria, but all across America, this dear man of God who's been a great source of encouragement to Mr. Graham and the team. He is the head of the Methodist Church here in Australia. And Dr. Wood, we welcome you to our American audience this evening, sir. We want a word of greeting, and if you'd like to preach the sermon, go ahead. Fine. Go right ahead. It has been indeed a very great privilege for me to support wholeheartedly this great movement, Dr. Graham's Crusade, which I believe will be a source of untold blessing to all the churches which have cooperated in this great revival which has only just begun. It has been suggested that for a minute or two I should try to give a brief testimony as a Christian. And therefore I should say that I was brought up in a Christian home where it was natural for me to respond to the love of God and to offer myself for Christian service. But as a lad, I had great ambitions, and it is at that point that I would say a few words to young people present in this great audience tonight. I desired to enter public life. I was ambitious to enter the legal profession. And as a young man, as a judge's associate in courts in Sydney, I was fascinated by the skill of clever lawyers. And yet, as a local preacher, I was challenged to enter the Christian ministry. And I was glad to give up other ambitions at that point. But ambitions altogether had not left me. And soon afterwards, while studying for the Christian ministry, it was suggested that I should consider work in overseas missions. And I'm ashamed to say that I smiled at that suggestion when it was first made to me. I had the deluded idea that some others may have also, that overseas missions work might be left to those 
not very well qualified academically. And I would say at this moment that this great work of overseas missions should receive the very best qualified, cultured and consecrated for that great cause. However, I'm glad to say that my pride and ambition were taken away and 13 years of my life were spent with the greatest of satisfaction as a missionary. May I just speak of that briefly to young people? It's right for you to be keen. It's only natural that you should desire to express all the potentialities and talents with which God has endowed you. But while you are so keen about these things, I urge you to give your best to the service of Christ. You do not know how or when you may serve him, but to be willing to give all that you have to God's service is the essential thing. May I add one other word to parents? Because I believe that very often parents, in the interest of ambition, interfere with their young people's desire to serve Christ. There are parents who are very ambitious for their boys to enter professional life and to gain fame and money. And there are parents who are very ambitious for their daughters to be socially successful, socially attractive and to marry wealth. And it becomes a most deplorable thing when very often young people are willing to offer themselves to the service of Christ and their parents interfere because of family ambition. And one sees sometimes the wistful look that comes over the face of young people who wish to serve Christ and they are being thwarted by the ambitions of their parents who are discouraging them. And therefore, as I close, I urge young people and parents to realize that Christ deserves the best. This is not a case of enthusiasm. It's not just a passing fancy. And if you are determined to give all to Christ who gave all to you, then I ask you to allow no pride or ambition to interfere with giving him what he deserves. He deserves the best. And Charles Wesley's words express it. My Saviour, how shall I proclaim, how pay the mighty debt I owe? Let all I have and all I am ceaseless to all thy glory show. Too much for thee I cannot give. Too much I cannot do for thee. Thank you, Dr. Wood, and how grateful we are for men with this great passion and spiritual leadership that we found here in Australia in all walks of the church life. We appreciate your presence this evening, sir. One hymn I think we ought to sing the Lord's my shepherd to the tune Crimin. It's number seven in your song books. If you don't have a book, borrow your neighbors, but let's join in. We don't have time for all of the verses, but we'll sing about three of them, I believe. Number seven, let us all stand as we sing together. On the first stanza, please.
doth restore again on the second verse. We're going to ask all of the sopranos in the choir to sing the lovely descant. Goodness and mercy all my life. Let's sing it without the piano on the last verse together. before the message this evening, America's beloved gospel singer and a man whose ministry and song is meaning so much to the people in Melbourne these days, here's George Beverly Shea to sing for you. One sat alone beside the highway pegging, his eyes were blind, the light he could not see. He clutched his rags and shivered in the shadows. Then Jesus came and bade his darkness flee. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory. Changed when Jesus comes to stay. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory. For all is I'm going to ask that we bow in prayer. 
every head bowed and every eye closed in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Convict. Consecrate. Convert. Blow as the wind. Reveal as the light. Burn is the fire. And may we see no one save Jesus tonight. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Actually, we have three audiences tonight. We have the great audience that is here in the music bowl. And then we have an audience in the state of Victoria and in the city of Melbourne by television. And then we have a vast television audience in the United States on about 175 television stations tonight. And we want to welcome all of you to this audience. I received a letter today that I want to read. I'd not I do not normally read a letter uh, before a congregation like this, but I was asked on a program the other evening, a television program by a newspaper reporter, if we were going to hold any services for the uh, Boges and the Witches. I guess that's what you call them. That corresponds to, in England, I understand, a teddy boy. I'm not sure what we call them in our country. We've got plenty of them. They're called zoot suiters, I think, or something like that. Whatever that is. But this letter says this. I am a Boji and was greatly impressed with your meeting last Friday night. It is quite true, as you say, that there are scores of people whose lives are empty. I know mine was until Friday night. There are hundreds of boaches and widges in Melbourne with empty lives. Would it be possible to hold a special boge and widgie meeting? Somewhere central. For sure, your message would be of great value to all of us. God bless you, a converted Boji. Now, I'm going to speak this coming Saturday night to young people, primarily to teenagers. And I hope that this great bowl will be absolutely filled with young people Saturday night. You say, now what is a young person? I usually ask the teenagers in our crusades to stand up, and you'd be surprised how many have bald heads and gray hair. But we want all of you to come, of course. 
But uh, in order for an older person, by older person, I mean if you're past 90, in order for the older people to get in, we want you to bring at least one teenager with you this coming Saturday night. Now I want you to turn for our text this evening to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. The 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. We read these words. Then said Jesus to those which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest that ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And then I want you to turn with me to the 18th chapter of John, the 18th of John, uh, beginning at the 36th verse. For another text, Jesus answered. He's talking to Pilate now in the judgment hall. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered. Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What? is truth. What is truth? There has never been a more penetrating question ever asked than the question asked by Pontius Pilate 2,000 years ago to Jesus Christ. What is truth? Jesus had already said to his disciples, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Men all over the world today are engaged in searching for truth in every realm of life. Science is trying to discover the truth about the physical universe in which we live. Philosophers are trying to discover the truth about human existence. Anthropologists are trying to discover truth about the origin of life and man. Psychologists are trying to discover truth about mind, about actions and reactions. Physiologists are trying to discover truth about the human body. Toward the end of his life, Buddha 
the great founder of Buddhism, made this remarkable statement. He said, I am still searching for truth. Buddha never claimed to find truth. He said, I'm still searching for it. And yet, one of the most astounding claims that has ever been made by any man in history was made by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. Muhammad never said that. Buddha never said that. Confucius never said that. No philosopher of history, no emperor of history has ever before claimed to be the incarnation and the embodiment of truth. Now, either Jesus Christ was what he claimed to be, or Jesus Christ is a liar and a fraud and a charlatan. And every person in this audience tonight has to decide which one he is. If Jesus Christ is the incarnation of truth, then nothing else in life matters except him. I should follow him. I should do everything Dr. Wood has just said. I should give everything I have to him and his cause. But if Jesus Christ is not what he claimed to be, then he's one of the greatest liars of history. And you and I have to face what I call the inescapable Christ. He cannot be avoided. You have to do something with him. You have to decide whether he is what he claimed to be, or whether he is a fraud. It's been my privilege in the past few years to go on to many universities and colleges to give talks and lectures and addresses and sermons. And I find that young people today in the university and college are searching for truth. They are discussing many of the latest philosophies and ideas that men give. They're studying comparative religions. They recognize that Mohammedanism has made a tremendous impact on the world. They recognize that Buddhism has made a tremendous impact upon the world. They recognize that communism is making a tremendous impact upon the world. They also recognize that Jesus Christ made a unique impact upon the world in which we live. Who was this Christ? What is he? He stood up before the men of his day and said, I am the truth. Again, the Bible says about him, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. The Logos, which was Christ, was truth. 
In Psalm 85:10, the Bible says, Mercy and truth are met together. And the scientist today is seeking for ultimate truth. We are trying to find the origin of life. We know a great deal about life, but we cannot generate life. We cannot manufacture life. There is a mystery beyond which science has not been able to go. Someday, someday, if what Jesus Christ said is true, if the Bible is true, someday, the scientist is going to find that Jesus Christ is that mysterious spark of life. The Bible says in Colossians, the first chapter, beginning at the 15th verse, these words, Now Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He existed before creation began. For it was through him, I'm reading from the Bible now, for it was through him that everything was made, whether spiritual or material, seen or unseen, through him and for him were created power, dominion, ownership, and authority. In fact, listen to this, every single thing was created through and for him. He is both the first principle and the upholding principle of the whole scheme of creation. The Bible indicates that all life sprang from Christ. The Bible indicates that he holds all things together. I do not have time to go into any scientific explanation tonight of the universe. I don't need to, to an intelligent audience like this. But this microphone, or this desk, is made up of atoms. Those atoms are held together by a mysterious cohesive power. That mysterious cohesive power that holds all things together, the Bible says, is Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were to let go for one moment this universe would blow up, according to the Bible. You say, Billy, can you prove that? No, I cannot. I'll go further and say that I cannot even prove the existence of God. You cannot put the mighty God in a test tube. You cannot put him in a mathematical formula. And I know many people that say, I will not believe in God unless I can see him and touch him. God is an infinite being. He is a spirit. He does not have a body of flesh and blood like ours. And if you come to God, you must come by faith. That's the reason Jesus said, you must become as a little child. You must become with childlike faith to God, to Jesus Christ. 
He is the mighty God, according to the Bible, that created the whole universe. And if you come to him, you'll have to come by faith. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You shall know Christ, and Christ shall set you free. The Bible says he is the truth. I know that there's a God because down in my heart, I know there's a God. I was born with an innate knowledge of God, and no atheistic system in the world can destroy this image of God within the human breast. You know there's a God, therefore I do not believe there is any such thing as a true atheist. In my study of anthropology, we found that there was not one tribe ever found anywhere in the world, not one nation, not one culture that didn't have religion and a faith in God. No matter how crude it might be, there was religious faith indicating that's innate within the human heart. I can look at the stars and the sun, and I can read the statistics about the solar system, and I know there's a God. I see the footprints of God. And so I accept this God by faith. But I find that Jesus Christ is God's Son, that He Himself is God, that He is God incarnate, that He is truth, and what Pilate was looking for stood before him. Pilate said, what is truth? And standing before him was a lowly Nazarene, just a carpenter. But here was the mighty God in human flesh, the incarnation of truth, everything that Pilate in his generation had been searching for in the halls of science was standing before him. Everything that you and I have been searching for in all of our lives is in him. I read in the paper today about an American film star. She is one of the highest paid women in the world. She said, I am unhappy in Hollywood. I've found that money and a glamorous life do not satisfy. She said, I'm looking and searching for peace. And she said, I'm going to live a long way from Hollywood in a quiet, rural community. Here's a beautiful young woman searching for truth and peace. And it's found in Christ. He is the embodiment of truth. And he said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Ye. That means everybody. All of you. The entire world. All cultures and races and languages of men. Ye. Then notice, secondly, shall know. It's not optional. You must know the truth if you're to be free. You can reject the truth, but you will have to pay the consequences. You can reject the law of gravity, 
but you'll pay for it. You can reject the calendar in your business, but you'll pay for it. You can reject the compass and become lost. You can reject the mathematical formula or the multiplication table, but you will pay for it. You'll end up in error. You can reject the truth as it is in Christ. And you have that ability and that right if you want to because you have a will of your own. But if you reject the truth, you'll pay for it with an emptiness, frustration, confusion, lack of peace, lack of joy. And in the end, there will be destruction and judgment and hell. Because, you see, you were made to know the truth. You are a living soul. You're more than flesh and blood. You are a soul created in the image of God with intelligence and conscience. That part of you that we call personality, that is your soul and you reside in your body and your soul was made for fellowship with God, for fellowship with the truth. And man, ever since he was driven out of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, driven out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin, has been trying to get back into Eden. He's been trying to get back to paradise. He's been trying to find the truth that he lost. And philosophy has been searching for centuries, and they never dreamed that it was in the person of Jesus Christ all the time. He is the truth. What does the truth do? It makes us free. You say, well, I'm not bound. I'm not a prisoner. Go to some prison and tell a prisoner that. I'm not a prisoner, aren't you? The Bible indicates you are a prisoner. There are thousands of you sitting in this great stadium this evening that are prisoners. There are thousands of you watching by television. You're prisoners. You're prisoners of pride. You're prisoners of jealousy. You're in bondage to immorality. You're in bondage to some narcotic. You're a prisoner, and you long to be free. You're a prisoner of your fears and frustrations and a thousand and one psychological problems. You're a prisoner, and you long to be free. I tell you tonight, ye shall know the truth, and the truth that is in Christ shall make you free. He will make you free from three things. First, you can be free from the penalty of sin. The entire Bible is filled with stories of sin. I heard a man some time ago say that the Bible is, in places, an immoral book. And if you ban certain types of obscene literature, you'd have to ban the Bible, because the Bible also talks about sex and so forth. The Bible never covers up sin. It never makes it look glamorous. It always teaches that sin brings judgment. The Bible tells the true story about men, and the Bible has concluded 
that all have sinned. Every person in this audience tonight, the speaker, we are all sinners in the sight of God. We have broken God's law. We've broken his commandments. We've come short of his righteousness. We are sinners. We are displeasing to God. And as a result of our sin, there is a penalty. The penalty is death. Death to the body, yes. Death to the soul, here and now. Separated from God because of sin. The soul empty and void, searching, trying to find an answer to the problems of life, but never finding it. And dying in misery and frustration and confusion. Many of you are afraid. I talked to a man on the plane coming over the other day from Honolulu. He said, you know, every time I get on a plane, he said, I'm so frightened I have to have a sedative. He said, when I even see a plane flying over, he said, terror strikes me. I said, why are you flying? He said, my business demands it. Fear! That man needs to be set free. I told him about Christ and how Christ could set him free. But we are headed toward death, spiritual death, separation from God, and eternal death, which is hell. Separation from God forever. Jesus says, I will set you free. I will forgive your sins. I will change your life. There are thousands of you here today that are just like a criminal under the penalty of death. I do not know whether you have capital punishment here in Australia or not. But in the United States, in many of our states, we have capital punishment. And I have been to some of those prisons where a criminal will be sitting on what we call death's row and he's under sentence of death and he must die to pay for his crime. Every one of us is under the sentence of eternal death. You say, well, Billy, if God is a God of love, why would he sentence anyone to death? The governor of the state of North Carolina from which I come has the ability and the power to pardon any criminal. Was the governor responsible for the criminal going to jail? Was the governor responsible for the murderer going to the gas chamber? No, the governor didn't even know the man. He had nothing to do with it. But a court of law has said the law of the state has been broken. It must be paid for. God has in his universe an irrevocable moral law. And God says anyone that transgresses that law must pay for it. God loves the sinner. But God is a just God. He can't just go around forgiving everybody. Unless the sin is paid for, and either you must pay for it, or someone else must pay. The Bible says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, 
for that all have sinned. I heard about during the war that a lot of the fellows would be called to go out on patrol duty that was very dangerous up here in New Guinea and other places in this great Pacific War. And they would be a young fellow that would have a family. He would show his family portraits to the other fellows during the course of their marches and so forth. And when his time came to go on patrol duty, some of the single fellows would say, no, wait a minute. You stay. I'm going to volunteer to go in your place. And they'd be accepted and some of them would go out never to come back. In order that the man that had a family that was looking for him to come back home might be spared. Jesus Christ, the embodiment of truth, came to die in your place. He went to the cross that we might be set free. We are under the penalty of sin. The penalty is death. Jesus took our death on the cross. He died in our place, and that's why you have a cross. And that's why when Good Friday comes around, we remember the death of Christ. Every time you go to church and take Holy Communion, you're remembering the death of Christ. And on every Catholic church and Protestant church in Australia, you'll see a cross. Why? Why does the church put such an emphasis on the cross? The cross was the place of the execution of criminals because on that cross, Jesus Christ, the incarnation of truth, died in your place. Died for the penalty of sin. And he says, I'll set you free. I'll free you from sin. And God says, because of that, I will put your sins behind my back. I'll bury your sins in the depths of the ocean. He didn't say, I'll bury it in the Yarra River. It may dry up sometime. I understand you have some streams in Australia that dry up certain times of the year. God says, I'll bury your sins in the ocean. We were traveling over across the Pacific, and the pilot came back and said to us, do you know how deep it is here? We said, no. He told us, I've forgotten because I might exaggerate it, but it was a long way. God says, I'll bury your sins out of sight. And God says also, he used another expression. He says, I'll put them as far as the east is from the west. Now, God didn't say, I'll put them as far as the north is from the south, because there is a south pole, there is a north pole. You know, one of the things that's difficult for us to get used to is, that when it gets cold here, your wind is coming from the south. When it gets cold at home, it comes from the north. We're in the southern hemisphere here. There is a north pole, there is a south pole, but there is no east pole or west pole. There is no east, there is no west, and God says your sins are as far as the east is from the west. God said something else. He said, I'll remember your sins against you no more. How wonderful. I cannot forget the sins I've committed, but God has the ability to forget 
and God says, I'll remember them against you no more. I'll wipe them out. What a wonderful thing to go to bed tonight and know that every sin is forgiven. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And then the second thing, he says that he will free us from the power of sin. You know, there are many people I found here in Australia, and certainly true in the United States as well, that are confused about the mystery of God. A man said to me the other day, he said, you know, God is a big mystery. Well, I want to ask you something. If God is such a big mystery, have you ever thought about the other mystery? The mystery of evil. The mystery of iniquity. The world's finest brains trying to devise peace. Mr. McMillan in Moscow. A thousand and one efforts to bring about peace. And yet the history of the world indicates that every generation seemingly has to fight it out. There's a mystery. There's another mystery down inside of you. You don't want to do bad, but you do it. You don't want to lie, but you do tell a lie. You don't want to be jealous, but you are jealous. You don't want to be unforgiving, but you are unforgiving. You don't want to be proud, but you are proud. You don't want to commit immorality, but you do commit it. You don't want to get drunk, but you do get drunk. There's a pull. There's a tug pulling you down always. And it's a struggle for the best of people to keep above the mire of evil all around us. There's a mystery, and it's called in the Bible the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of lawlessness. We're seeing the whole world at the moment in revolt. Africa is revolting and seething. All over the world there is revolt There's the revolt against everything we've ever known. The Bible talks about a mystery. A mystery. That is the power of sin. The power of sin to grip a man, a man in his right mind, a university professor, if you please, the finest and the highest and the best of the nation, to grip him. And he can do nothing about it. He's in the chains and ropes of sin. Jesus says, I'll free you. I'll set you free. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. And the Bible says, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. It will not rule you. It will not be king and lord and master of you any longer. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be free from those things that are binding you and holding you down? You can be by simply giving your life to Jesus Christ. You have to do it by faith, mind you. How do you do it? You do it first by repenting of your sin. That means that you're willing to acknowledge that you have sinned, and it means that you're willing to turn from your sins, but secondly, it means more. It means that you receive Christ by faith. Now, that is a definite act of your will.
Right now, where you are, you can receive Christ. You may be sitting in your living room at home. You may be right here in this vast amphitheater. But you can receive Christ tonight, right now, and your life can be changed. Don't ask me how it's done. It's a supernatural act. It's done by the Holy Spirit. The moment you receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit comes in and transforms and changes your life. And that is called in the Bible regeneration. The renewal of life. You receive new life. That can happen to you right now. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. How wonderful to be free. Therefore, tonight, the only free people in the world are Christians. The Christians that are in Russia tonight are free. The Christians that are in America tonight are free. The Christians in China tonight are free. The Christians in Australia tonight are free. And they're the only truly free people in the world because their souls have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. And we have become more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then the Bible teaches, someday we shall be set free completely from the presence of sin. The Russians did a remarkable thing a few weeks ago. They sent a satellite out into space that got beyond the pull of Earth's gravity and is supposedly orbiting around the sun. Someday, the Bible teaches, we shall be taken as children of God away from the pull of sin. And we shall spend eternity with him exploring a glorious universe that he has created for us to enjoy. And no longer will we be tempted by the devil. No longer will we have the temptations and the pull and the gravity of sin. We shall be completely free. Those and so as Mr. Graham continues his message here at the Music Bowl, we're sorry that we have to leave you with this telecast this evening. However, many of you listening right now would like to be free. You'd like to know this freedom of sin and the power of sin that Mr. Graham has been spoken about. Right now, you can give your heart and life to Christ. If you will, receive him right there in the privacy of your own home. Wherever you may be, you can say yes to him. Until next week, then, this is Cliff Barrows for Mr. Graham and every member of the team saying goodbye.